What will it take for a rapid transition to clean energy that doesn't leave communities behind? Climate One conversations feature all aspects of the climate emergency, the individual and the systemic, the exciting and the scary. I'm Greg Dalton. Here we go! In December 2020, the three massive smokestacks at the largest coal-fired power plant in the West, the Navajo Generating Station in Arizona, were demolished. The plant had employed about 750 people, nearly all Navajo and Hopi, before going dark in 2019. We've lived in those shadows of those um, towers, and the shadows were higher asthma rates, degradation of water quality, and a lot of people not benefiting. Wahala Johns is co-founder and director of Native Renewables, which provides power to homes on the Navajo and Hopi reservations. We believe that home is the most precious place for our people, and we see solar and the sunlight helping to strengthen our home. She'll join us later in the program, along with Paula Glover, president of the Alliance to Save Energy and former head of the American Association of Blacks and Energy, and Jeremiah Bauman, director of federal policy with the research firm Energy Innovation. First, as we enter the new Biden-Harris administration, what are the biggest opportunities to quickly decarbonize the American economy? Decentralization with regulation is the way to go. Loretta Lynch is former president of the California Public Utilities Commission and an energy consultant. She is unequivocal about the need to move away from energy that is dug out of the ground. We have to make choices. We cannot afford, either economically or environmentally, to continue to buy and use fossil fuels to produce electricity and to heat our homes and businesses. And until we make that choice and stand by the economic choice and the political choice, we will never actually attack or address climate change. So that means, in practical terms, no more fracking. The Biden administration must ban fracking in the United States. That means no more coal. That means no more liquefied natural gas, or LNG. No more. And that also means no big grid. Instead, we need local and sustainable solutions that are community-based, that are designed for each and every community, and community-driven. But because community-driven means we will actually deal with the undealt-with environmental justice implications of our big grid, big energy fossil energy choices of the past. But we can only allow those local community-driven solutions that are clean and sustainable. Nobody gets to say, yeah, we're going to stay on coal. That won't work for climate. It won't work for the United States anymore. That sounds, that's okay, you know, in the in states where there's no coal, but in Wyoming, West Virginia, there's a lot of, coal, Illinois, there's coal states in this country where what you just said means is a threat, means it's going to hurt people who directly work in the coal industry and people who indirectly benefit from those jobs and that activity. Um, so what do you say to that displacement? I say it's the same as when we had horse and buggy manufacturers and people who tended horses. We couldn't have a parallel system of horses and cars. We had to choose because horses and cars together were a recipe for disaster. So what did we do? We made sure that the carriage manufacturers started working in car plants. The people who made seats for carriages made seats for cars. The people who made bodies for carriages made bodies for cars. And the people who tended the horses got retrained to do something else. We cannot continue to have coal and solar. 
because coal doesn't work. Coal is the horse and buggy of the 21st century, except it's also destroying our planet, unlike the horse and buggy. So just like we have to fundamentally rethink the horse and car transition, we now need to fundamentally rethink the car and coal transition. And all those solutions you suggest are all on the supply side, ban fracking, do away with coal. Uh, we should clarify that fracking is done for natural gas and fracking is also done for oil, uh, for liquid transportation fuels. But if you ban fracking for oil, that doesn't reduce the demand. The oil will still be supplied from somewhere, perhaps Venezuela, from some foreign country that is hostile to the United States. So it's great to ban fracking, might make some environmentalists feel good. It doesn't really solve the problem because people... People are still going to drive their cars. The demand is still there. Sure. And so we obviously have to have demand side solutions as well. I have solar on my house. I should be able to plug my electric car into my house and give back to the grid when the grid needs the electricity for the house and take from the grid when I need electricity from the car for the car. Right now, the way the uh, pricing works with my local utility it doesn't incentivize anyone to do that. We should be changing our utility pricing structures to be able to allow that kind of demand resource, flexible demand resource to happen. And that's on the personal level and it's also on the community level. But, you know, if we ban fracking, we're also going to lower the risk of earthquakes because clearly throughout this nation, people have had to confront the uh previously unconfronted or had to confront problem of earthquakes based on what's happening in the ground because of fracking. So yes, we have to deal with the supply. We also have to deal with the demand. But we are going to transition in this world from fossil to renewable sources. The only question is, how long is it going to take us? How expensive is it going to be? And how hard is the transition going to be? And the transition is harder if you continue to allow horses next to cars. The transition's harder if you continue to allow LNG next to solar. Though if you look at decarbonization, which parts of the U.S. economy are decarbonizing and getting cleaner, uh, the electricity sector is a better news story than the uh, the gasoline and mobility sector, right? And I think that look at that as well. One reason may be because it's more decentralized. It's regulated largely at the state and local level. It's less concentrated. The auto industry, the oil industry has more concentration of power, is more federally regulated where they can have more influence. So do you buy that thesis that decentralization and is helpful to decarbonizing and that electricity is getting cleaner faster than personal mobility. Decentralization with regulation is the way to go because it's not just magically that the electric sector is relatively doing better than the other sectors. It's because of state and city mandates for them to do better. They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They're doing it because they are statutorily mandated to do it in the states that they are mandated to do it. So the regulation part of that at the state and local level, I would argue, is the key. But also the fact that uh, there's public ownership is now more and more the key in the areas where there is public ownership in the Northwest, in some cities throughout the country where we have municipal power is getting greener all the time because they see the climate change impacts of that. And even the Navy is getting greener because they see the cost, the economic cost of not addressing climate change. So I agree. The feds are um, 
let's just say asleep at the switch and certainly asleep at the climate switch, uh, even under democratic administrations. Now that's better than actively dismantling all environmental protections as we've seen in the last four years, but being asleep at the switch and letting the companies do their own thing is no longer a viable solution if we want a viable planet. Infrastructure is seen as one area where Democrats and Republicans can craft a bipartisan deal. The electric grid could be part of that transportation roads, but we have crumbling infrastructure in this country. What would you like to see as part of an infrastructure deal to to move toward a cleaner economy? I'd like to see a decentralized but regulated electric grid. And the reason is you have to choose. The Biden administration is facing fundamental historic choices that we have not had for a hundred years. And the choice is you either go green or you don't. Halfway is not enough. And so a big grid where the federal government takes over the entire grid planning and there's no room for local and environmental justice solutions is a grid that is going to allow coal and natural gas and fracking and LNG to exist for longer than they are economically viable because a big grid will allow them to find more markets for their coal and their LNG at a time when we need to be cutting them off and not providing more markets for them to access. Well, one reason that people favor sort of a national solution is because of the coffers of Uncle Sam, that their federal dollars are required, that that local communities can't afford some of these investments and they worry about um, increasing costs. So how can we go greener uh, without raising utility costs for people who can least afford to pay? Well, number one, if we really had a free market, solar and wind and battery storage would be cheaper than coal and LNG and nuclear. Those are all heavily subsidized on the tax side and heavily subsidized from the federal government. So they appear cheaper in some markets, but they're not cheaper to produce. It's because they get all these incentives, out and out subsidies and tax advantages that they have been historically cheaper. But if we had a fair fight in terms of what are the costs of these various energy production solutions, Wind and solar and batteries would win every single time now, every single time, as well as geothermal. So the federal government can still pay for things, but not have to control them. And the best example of that is in education. We still have local school boards and we still have state policies, but a whole heck of a lot of that money is coming from the feds. The feds could continue to make choices, smart localized, clean, and green choices, and allow the local communities to implement those choices, just like they do in health, just like they do in welfare, just like they do in education. So as you look at the new Biden-Harris administration, it's very early days. Uh, They have some policies, plans, don't really have their team in place yet. Um, How are you feeling about how ambitious they will be? Because you say they need to be more ambitious than Obama was uh, when Vice President Biden was the vice president. Well, just as the vice president, as Vice President Biden pushed former President uh, Obama to uh, get into the 21st century when it came to things like equal marriage, hopefully he's also going to be pushing himself into the right solutions economically. And so I have great hope, but we need to trust but verify. I'm thrilled that Jennifer Granholm is going to be at the head of the Department of Energy. I think she is a climate visionary, but where the 
pedal gets put to the metal is where who are the nominees for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and the other very key jobs within the Department of Energy and throughout Interior EPA to see where who is going to implement a real climate first policy. And I am most heartened by President Biden's uh, focus on environmental justice and his commitment to environmental justice. So the early policies and the early people he puts in place to implement those policies are going to tell the tale, whether it's talk or action. But I am very optimistic that we are going to have, for really the first time in any coordinated and major way, a focus on environmental justice when it comes to energy and the environment. Loretta Lynch is a former member of the California Public Utilities Commission and an energy consultant and expert. Thanks for coming on Climate One. Thanks for having me, Craig. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about a fast, fair, and clean energy transition. Coming up, technology and expertise to improve energy access for everyone. The energy policy world tends to be dominated by highly technical sort of policy wonks who are trying to balance electrons on the grid and come up with a sort of perfect metric and market for reducing carbon without taking other values into account. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about how to ensure a fast and fair transition to clean energy. Nearly a century ago, the Rural Electrification Act of 1936 sought to reduce the disparities between urban and rural access to electricity, but the program excluded many of the first Americans. It's 2021, and we still have a lack of infrastructure to tribal nations. You know, we're still the forgotten region to um, get access to power and infrastructure and funding. Wahela Johns is co-founder and director of Native Renewables, which provides power to homes on the Navajo and Hopi reservations. About 60,000 indigenous people across Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah don't have electricity in their homes. We talked about improving energy access for all Americans with Paula Glover, president of the Alliance to Save Energy and Industry Group, and former head of the American Association of Blacks in Energy, and Jeremiah Bauman, director of federal policy with the research firm Energy Innovation, and a former aide to U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat from Oregon. Most of the infrastructure that is uh, was put in America with energy and transmission has been paid for by, by the federal government, but this energy transmission has provided power to the rest of um, communities in America that are predominantly non-native. And I think that's the, um, you know, that's the, the actions is what we see. And if uh, the federal government can push for um, building dams and creating canals, um, hundreds of miles and transmission lines from three states over to power, you know, municipalities like Phoenix or uh, Los Angeles or San Francisco, we can provide power for these rural areas that um, are populated by indigenous people and tribal nations. I read that 75% of the 15,000 unelectrified homes are on the Navajo Nation. So that number, what was your access to water and electricity growing up on the Navajo Nation near Winslow, Arizona? Um, so my father, uh, 
was able to get a home and Winslow is located right outside the Navajo Nation uh, reservation and it's a border town and that's where he went to school. And so he was able to get a house there and, and um, we were able to go to school there. Um, but before that, we were on our reservation and went to boarding schools and that was pretty much the only schools that exist. Um, but my parents live on the reservation right now. They don't have electricity or running water. So I wouldn't say like we, we actually <laughs> are there yet. And so, um, you know, and it's, it's, they're one of thousands of families that don't have access to power and water. Uh, they haul water every other day. And uh, right now they use um, solar generators to help power their lights. But we live about three to four miles from a transmission line. And to be able to put a transmission line to come up to our home, it's about $27,000 per mile. Um, and a lot of times we are the ones uh, that have to uh, foot the bill. And we don't have that type of capital. And I think this is the um, challenges, the affordability when it comes to power. But on top of that, we have designed off-grid solar and battery um, storage solutions. Um, and still it's you know, high and pricey for families that live in rural Navajo Nation. Yeah, that's how you're changing the narrative by founding Native Renewables with other Navajo women. So tell us about how you're empowering yourselves using clean energy. So off-grid solar and battery storage is uh, a unique package. I think it's taught us the technical side of how we want to educate around this technology for the users and customers. Um, but the limitations that it also has to, to live off grid and, um, all of our education has been done in our language and, um, culturally sensitive to our people. So they understand. So a child to an elder can understand, um, the limitations to off grid solar. It's not like grid tied. Um, and we do this because we want the product to last 20 to 30 years, um, and, you know, it's been really fun. It, it's, we've uh, been able to build a lot of good relationships with a lot of these families that live in these remote locations that don't have access. Um, so it's made us, uh, I guess, understand better the, the needs and understand um, our community more in, in a way that we can be of service. And I think that's been the most rewarding part of it. And we all, um, a lot of our uh, employees grew up without electricity and run, running water. So we understand the challenges and have created the solutions that fit, you know, our, our family's needs. And we believe that home is the most precious place uh, for our people. And what we are trying to bring is stability and strength. Um, and we see solar and the sunlight helping to strengthen our home and um, we have this beautiful value around, it's called which means balance and harmony. And that's our goal in life as Indigenous people, as Navajo people, is to have always balance and harmony surrounding us, beauty surrounding us always. And with this concept, we built this program called Huizhong Homes, which is to bring that balance and harmony into home and using this renewable energy and, and sunlight that you know, blesses us every day in 
on the Navajo Nation. We get over 300 days of sunlight. So it's a, it's a pretty remarkable program and initiative, and our people on the ground are spectacular. And they're all Navajo um, women and Hopi women and um, men as well. So I've learned a lot uh, about indigenous uh, cultures in the last year and have been embarrassed and ashamed at the, at the uh, holes, gaping holes in my education and my somewhat my understanding and uh, ignorance, frankly. And uh, when I read your article in the New York Times, uh, very eloquent about your personal story, there was a part in there that said, um, it's not because we choose this uh, traditional lifestyle or culture that we live in energy poverty. This is not our choice. So I'd like you to elaborate that on some people may hold that view that, oh, you're choosing to live that way. It's not that the U.S. government intentionally excluded delivering basic services to your nation that it gave to everybody else. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the, um, you know, with this pandemic hitting us um, much harder than and disproportionately harder than other communities um, it raised the visibility even more of the lack of water and infrastructure, connectivity, and um, power. And there was a lot of surprises, you know, it was on national television, like, oh my gosh, these people, you know, they don't have these basic infrastructure, and that's good. But it's also like, there's a deeper story here um, that talks about uh, our history and um, us being pushed as tribal nations uh, throughout the United States to um, be on reservations uh, and the economy that um, is there for you is extracting your natural resources. So we have um, hundreds, um, if not thousands of um, uranium mining mines that have happened over the course of 50 to 60 years. We have you know, five large coal-fired power plants that are located on and near our Navajo Nation in the past 50 years. Um, oil, gas development. I mean, this has been kind of the bread and butter of most tribal nations is extracting their natural resources, fossil fuels, to generate jobs, to generate revenues. Um, we haven't been given the freedom to um, design the way that we go about our policies and ec with economic you know, um, you know, a transition or um, do it in a way that, you know, fits our needs as, as people. And I think that's the opportunity now. And uh, we learned a lot from the extraction that has happened on our lands and um, irreversible damage that has happened to our aquifers and the health of our people. And, and I think that those are lessons that we can take to help shape um, an economic policy, uh, planning uh, for uh, a transition to um, good, uh, I guess, hojon, you know, lifeways. And that, that's been like our goal as, as people. And I think there's so much opportunity to, um, you know, seed those ideas and water them. We're talking about a just transition from fossil fuel to clean energy as the Biden-Harris administration comes into power with Wahela Johns, co-founder and director of Native Renewables. Paula Glover is president of the Alliance to Save Energy and Industry Group and formerly head of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. And Jeremiah Bauman, director of federal policy with the research firm Energy Innovation. 
and a former aide to U.S. Senator Jeff Merkley, a Democrat of Oregon. Paula Glover, I'd like to ask you another story about racial exclusion and then empowerment in the energy arena. In 1977, President Carter convened a meeting of energy experts. No people of color were on the original invitation list. Who was Clark Watson and what did he do when he heard about that all-white meeting? <laughs> um. So Clark Watson, who was actually the founder of the American Association of Blacks and Energy, which is an organization um, that I had the pleasure of being the CEO of for eight years, but also I've been a member of this associ that association for now 27 years. Um, and so what Clark did was really bring together African-Americans who actually were currently working um, in the energy business and African-American leaders, because he was really strategic and very thoughtful about his choices. He understood the dynamics of how Washington worked and that, you know, title, who it is, where they work, what they do, all of that stuff kind of matters when you're trying to gain entryway um, into right policy spaces that have been close to you in some way. Um, and he created the association, um, 12 members, um, initial founding members, only one of whom is still with us today. And, and I've been blessed to have known 10 of those 12. So I've, I've been very lucky that I've gotten to know these, these men and women. Um, but it was founded really to educate and inform what I would describe the intersection between public policy, energy policy, um, and African-American communities and low and moderate income communities. And I think a lot of what um, Walia has shared about Native communities is we've seen that in Black and Brown communities and energy um, across the country for decades. Um, and it still exists. Um, and I've heard that story before. And the, the first time that I heard the story um, of 15,000 Navajo not having electricity, it literally broke my heart. Um, but there are other communities as well who also do not have access to electricity and clean water. And they are Americans who have been forgotten. And many of them are black and brown and native. Um, and we, we assume, I think, that all of our communities um, experience our industry in the same kind of way and have the same needs. Um, and just, you know, from the work that I'm doing now, even at the Alliance, when you start talking about public policy, there needs to be a recognition that every community needs something different. And so having a one-size-fit-all answer um, or deciding that we're going to give everybody the same thing and those communities that have been underinvested in or not invested in for, again, generations will all of a sudden magically catch up. Um, and none of that really happens. And, and so, you know, I, I would challenge all of our associations and all of us who do this work that that's what we should be insisting upon. We don't. Um, which is why we have the results that we have. But I think we should. I think that's just the right thing to do, right? Focus on those who need it the most um, and the rest of us will be okay. And focus on the economic impact, right? Somebody makes money. Jeremiah Bauman, you've worked in energy for in the U.S. Senate, for Bloomberg. Um, does that happen? Do, do those in the energy world, do people think of people of color first? What's your perspective on what we've been talking about? Yeah, I think there's such a profound need to not just think about communities of color first, but think about these issues thoroughly and over the course of history as we're doing here today. And I wanted to start with that because no, the answer to your question is no, most energy policy work across the board in this country hasn't approached it that way. I'm just really struck and reminded by the deep and long history of these problems. I spent years in the Senate working with four Native nations in Northern California and Southern Oregon 
who had the federal government and private utilities come in and build dams that destroyed their fisheries. And that wasn't the end of it. They lost their tribal recognition in the 1950s, some of them. They didn't regain it to the 1980s. One of them had most of their land taken away by the federal government, which turned around and made hundreds of millions of dollars harvesting timber on it. That happened in the 1970s. Just years ago, we saw communities, Flint, of course, the most high profile, where low-income people, communities of color, are losing their access to water today. These are really profound problems, and they're thorough, they're deeply embedded, and they go back for hundreds of years. So that's where we have to start. And no, the energy policy world has not usually thought about these things this way. In some ways, it's the opposite. The energy policy world tends to be dominated by highly technical sort of policy wonks who are trying to balance electrons on the grid and come up with the sort of perfect metric and market for reducing carbon without taking other values into account. And that's really part of what we have to reverse. I also want to emphasize that you have to also put in place specific policies about justice and equity. You have to not just make sure that you're figuring out how to do clean and renewable energy and save energy in a way that embraces equity, but you have to look at how does EPA and Department of Energy Policy overall look at equity and justice, and how do we make sure that we are cracking down on the pollution of our air and water that has for decades, for centuries, disproportionately affected Native communities, communities of color. And this is really a pivotal moment um, because for the first time ever, those values are at least being attempted to be baked into federal policy by a new administration that's about to take office. And federal personnel to lead the US EPA. President-elect Biden has nominated Michael Regan, who'd be the first black man to run EPA. He's the top environmental official for North Carolina. Paula Glover, what hopes do you have for Michael Regan to both rebuild a, an EPA that's been um, decimated and to really address, um, deliver on these campaign promises that are easy to make and harder to implement? Yeah, I mean, I actually am very helpful, and I was really pleased with his choice for EPA, um, and particularly because I think Mr. Egan had a specific set of experiences that's very unique coming out of North Carolina. I think my concern is always, particularly around energy policy specifically, is that those people who don't have a voice are always the ones who have to pay for it, and those people who can pay for it never have to pay for it. Um, and so addressing climate change for these communities is should be top of mind because they are impacted the most. But I don't think they should just, we shouldn't just be talking about the environment and not talking about economics with those same communities. And how are we creating opportunities for the people who live in those communities to more fully participate in this economy that we're building? Um, it's the one-sidedness of the conversation that would make me worry because I would say, well, we've addressed climate change from a health and pollution perspective, which I think is important. But if that same community, if their bills are going to increase 10, 20, 15%, and you have not created an economic opportunity for their businesses or for people to work in those jobs that pay enough so that they can absorb these costs, then we actually haven't done anything good for them. That to me is worrisome. Well, Hayla John, I'd like to hear your thoughts on, on this moment of transition with a new administration coming in. Is this a moment of hope and opportunity or are you kind of wary and skeptical? Uh, you know, I'll wait and see until they prove it. <laughs> um, I am very hopeful. I mean, the idea to 
you know, put 40% of investments into environmental justice communities is um, spectacular to me. I mean, um, I haven't heard of administration really focused on environmental justice. And I think um, communities that have been affected by industries and pollution um, and helping with the transition, you know, coming from uh, a frontline community, I live two miles from a coal mining operation that just closed last year. And we are in a deep uh, need for transition support uh, from the federal government, from state governments to help our economy. That was, you know, 35 to 40 percent of our uh, revenues for our nation. And for the Hopi Nation, it was 80 percent of their revenues um, from this coal mining operation. And I think that's the, um, you know, part that we don't see too much support um, or offering um, to help our nation in a transition where we supplied over 5 million people with their energy needs for 50 years. Um, and yet, you know, the community that has been the provider is the one that has the most homes that don't have access to electricity, um, that doesn't have access to water um, or connectivity. You know, um, we need support for a transition. You're listening to a conversation about a fast and fair transition to clean energy. This is Climate One. Coming up, making sure communities have a stronger voice in their own energy planning. Before we invest in any other thing, we should be helping people maintain their quality of life and or increase their quality of life while at the same time using less energy. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about improving energy access in communities across America with Paula Glover, president of the Alliance to Save Energy, Jeremiah Bauman, director of federal policy with the research firm Energy Innovation, and Wahela Johns, co-founder and director of Native Renewables. I asked Wahela for her thoughts in response to the demolition of the iconic towers at the Navajo Generating Station. We've lived in those shadows of the those um, towers and um, the shadows were um, higher asthma rates, um, degradation of water quality, and a lot of people not benefiting from this, uh, this industry. And I think that um, the, dislo- the relocation of uh, thousands of families as well, um, and the deceit that went behind the transactions for um, Peabody Coal Company to extract coal from our homelands. And, um, you know, I noticed it uh, last year in August in 2019. I noticed the the closure because the mining is two miles away from me and the machines stop operating. Um, We hear the machines night and day for many years. And it was nice to finally hear it be quiet and at night. And um, that was my moment of like, wow, she is finally going to get some rest. And um, when I say she, I refer to our homeland as a female mountain. And, um, and it, was, it was like a kind of a relief for her um, because we say that the coal is the liver of her. And the more that they extract coal, you know, it's going to weaken her system. And, and I think that's the, you know, connection that most indigenous peoples have to their land base 
is this um, traditional ecological knowledge. And we, we have definitely have that. And um, to, to see or to feel the, the stopping of mining uh, in 2019 was like, was really um, humble. Like for me, it was just like, wow, fine, finally, she's getting, she's going to get a rest. Um, but I, you know, with the smokestacks coming down, um, I, I mean, to me, it was just a clear indicator that uh, what's next and making room for um, opportunities for the Navajo Nation, the Hopi Nation to sell clean power on the existing infrastructure that is there. We have thousands of miles of transmission that comes from these power generating stations that go to Los Angeles, that goes to California, that needs a, you know, has a clean energy appetite, that goes to Nevada and Phoenix, um, but also New Mexico. And I think those are the opportunities where we can use existing infrastructure and reclamation lands to, you know, go solar or utility scale and put clean power on there. Um, but again, this had this kind of concept of just transition has to be led by people on the ground, by the communities in working in partnership with solar developers, but also our um, tribal nation. And um, many times there's disconnection between the local and the national tribal um, governments. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of good learnings of how we can do that um, together to, you know, build a plan that is going to be um, healthy for our nation. And so, I see a lot of opportunity um, in in the closure of Navajo Generating Station. Right, particularly if uh, some energy companies come in and with solar, whatever, wind to replace that coal and do so in more equitable and just terms is what I'm hearing. So that's not a repeat of the history that, that your people have seen again and again and again. Yes. I mean, I think that with solar developers, um, Many of them don't understand tribal sovereignty, don't understand the politics and the culture, uh, the history, um, and maybe see it as a op business opportunity only. And it's no different than, you know, a fossil fuel company coming in. And we need to change that culture in this transition. Um, there needs to be benefits to the community. And there's also needs to be an ownership stake and leadership and investment in the local communities to make um, sound decisions that are in, you know, um, consensus based, but also um, everyone is well informed in, in where they're moving together. Jeremiah Bowman, uh, we've heard about 750 people losing their job at the Navajo Generating Station. There's 300,000 energy efficiency workers are unemployed. Oil companies have laid off 100,000 workers. Some of that is COVID. Some of that is because of things that preceded and, and bigger than COVID. Um, Job retraining, helping workers is often talked about in this country. Hillary Clinton says the biggest mistake she made in her 16 campaign was talking about putting uh, coal companies and workers out of business. Do we ever get it right in this country and helping those kinds of people? It was, it's talked about, but, it, you know, is there an effective policy for help for helping these people that will be displaced by a transition away from fossil fuels? Well, you're definitely right that we don't have a very good history of this. Um, we don't generally have a very good history of taking care of not just communities of color, but uh, working class families and workers in general. If you look even at issues that aren't directly energy related, uh, the way that trade, for example, has reduced manufacturing in the U.S., 
European countries do a much better job taking care of workers and families that lose manufacturing jobs than the U.S. does. We should be looking to some of those examples for how we help workers and communities in transition. I would also really point to, uh, I mean, there are a number of things we should be doing that ought to work a lot better. One thing that Wahela mentioned in passing, I want to really point out is this notion of bottom-up economic planning and listening to the community about what's going to work in their community to create jobs in that community and not just having people think that they can write a smart five-point policy plan. It'll magically help hundreds of thousands of people around the country. Um, I think you have to both listen to communities and then think about state by state, industry by industry, community by community, just what are the right opportunities? Because there are, as Paula was starting to talk about, so many opportunities to own new businesses, to own new um, opportunities in this clean energy economy. It's not just about who's going to get the job drilling a geothermal well or installing a solar panel. It's about who's going to own the businesses. Are there going to be new manufacturing um, facilities around the country seeing living wage jobs building everything from electric vehicle infrastructure to components for electric vehicles to other new clean energy technologies? It's also about looking at just a lot of these communities are well positioned for jobs in the uh, economy of the future. As Wahela is talking about, the Navajo Nation has the infrastructure to be a new solar energy capital of the Southwest. A lot of the oil and gas communities in New Mexico, in Texas, those workers are incredibly well positioned to do everything from clean up the oil and gas wells that have in many cases been abandoned. This is something that Vice President-elect Harris and, and President-elect Joe Biden have been very interested in um, cleaning up those wells, similarly cleaning up coal mines. In a lot of cases, it's very similar skills uh, to the mining or the drilling to begin with. Geothermal is an opportunity to use drilling techniques, but for clean renewable energy that doesn't pollute the community. So you've got to be thorough about this stuff and look uh, at all the opportunities, but again, really work with the communities to make sure you're building a program that will work for them. There's interesting. The New York Times recently did a, a story about uh, college students planning to go into uh, geology and the oil and gas industry, and one of them said, "You know, jobs are starting to crater, and and the people, these students, are taking on debt, planning on this uh, career they thought they were going to have in oil and gas with these incomes." And one of them said, "Well, if I can't make it in oil and gas, I'll pivot to geothermal because I'll be able to use my skills, and rather than you know suck out oil and gas, we can take out take out heat." Uh, Paula Glover, I'd like to get your your thoughts there on on this transition. And I've heard from other people, reporters at Bloomberg and elsewhere, that actually, um, you know, the fossil fuel industry is more diverse and inclusive than the clean energy industry. Which, uh, so your thoughts there on sort of the, the job path and the transition for from fossils to clean? Yeah, I think you know there is a lot of opportunity from fossil to clean, and and you know this because so many fossil fuels or a good number of fossil fuel companies are actually have clean energy businesses. There's a reason, right, for that, and so um, in the larger narrative, right, I wouldn't count out our big Chevrons and BPs and Shells of the world. They've already they've been pivoting and they're continuing to pivot. They don't have plans to go out of business. They understand that we're going in another direction and they want to be a part of that. And so um, Shells and BPs faster than Chevrons. I think European companies yes. are moving faster than yes, the absolutely. American ones. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I think, right, yes, oil and natural gas is more diverse than clean energy. That's actually true. The numbers tell you that. But nobody is actually really diverse enough, 
right? If you look at the percentage of people of color in the workforce, and then you overlay that where, where we're represented, best in utilities is probably at that 10, 11%. That's probably the closest to what it would be versus actual population. Um, and then it goes down. And so oil and gas may be in the 7 to 9% range. The clean energy is in the 4 to 6% range. So it is true, but clean energy is also new, right? So it's a, a much bigger opportunity. And I think um, for clean energy companies to be thinking about how they integrate not only workers who are leaving fossil fuels, but have the skill set, right? Recognizing that people have a skill set that's transferable. But also, I think more importantly, to Jeremiah's point, is how are we integrating that community in our planning from the very beginning? Um, because we've never done that before. And part of, I think, the risk with that, to be honest with you, is that what the community says they want may not necessarily be what we think they should have, right, as the company who's kind of starting that conversation. And you have to figure out, are you going to be okay with that, right? It's really very simple. When you allow the community to drive the decision making, um, then you don't get to pick what the result is, that they, what, they, what they choose. I have no idea. I would say because I work for the Alliance to Save Energy, that the first stop is energy efficiency, right? That before we invest in any other thing, we should be helping people use, main, one, maintain their quality of life and or increase their quality of life by while at the same time using less energy. And there's lots of technology that would allow us to do that if we have the proper incentives for people to make those investments. And when we're talking about disadvantaged communities, a lot of that has to do with program design. It has to do with recognizing that the infrastructure is not the same in disadvantaged communities, that they are going to need more, that you can't just say, I'm gonna have a weatherization program going there and everybody's gonna take advantage of it and it's all good. It doesn't work that way because if I haven't had investment in my home or my community, I can't just, you know, add a thermostat and it's fine. My husband and I live in a home that's almost a hundred years old. I could not put a smart meter in this house, right, with, before doing a whole lot of other investment in my house because my house is just too old. It's not built for that. Um, and yet we can afford to take care of our house. But imagine someone who's just trying to make it and then we want them to make these investments. So I think, you know, we have to think holistically about right, what the community needs and hear from them what their priorities are and then begin to chip away with it. Um, and then the last thing I would say is just around the workforce conversation, because I think even when we talk about workforce development in communities, we need to understand what the landscape is in that particular community and see where, where are the other investments or other organizations who'd be able to support us in the process um, so that we're doing the right thing by people and not expecting people to make their own way because we've kind of put some stuff out there and as long as you know how to navigate the system, you'll be all right. Like to me, that's kind of the system we have set up and that's a system that I would want to break. Well, Haley Johns, I'd like to ask you about the nomination of New Mexico Congresswoman Deb Holland for U.S. Secretary of Interior. If confirmed, she would be the first Native American to preside over America's vast public lands and national parks. What's the significance of that milestone and what do you hope she would bring? Um, I think it's wonderful that uh, she uh, was nominated, and I 100% um, support that idea. In all of my work, I would say over 25 years, my letters uh, to the federal government were to the Secretary of Interior. So I know all the past 
20 years interior um, secretaries. So to write a letter to Deb Holland as a secretary of interior would be amazing. Um, just because there's, um, you know, the story of Black Mesa and um, who could reverse to support restoring our water that was damaged by Peabody Coal Company's pumping um, is the Secretary of Interior. Um, they have that one authority. And so that, you know, since I came into this movement about 25 years ago to protect our water, the Navajo Aquifer, I understood this language um, as the leases were being negotiated between the Interior and um, Peabody and Tribal Nations, Navajo and Hopi. Um, and so you know, that was our main push was to get the Secretary of Interior's attention to restore and uh, replace the water that has been used by Peabody Coal Company and um, for the companies to be accountable for their cleanup. And today we're still going to be pushing that. And I think um, I really had an emotional moment with uh, when she was selected uh, because it also showed me, I think that, you know, you heard about when Obama got, you know, elected, um, there was this moment where I was like, wow, like someone of color, this is amazing. And just like really overwhelmed with joy. And I think that's the same feeling that I had for a Native American woman uh, to be in this position, a cabinet position um, for myself, but also for my daughters to see that it is possible that we can be in these positions as Native women. And the other piece is that previous to, um, you know, colonization here in the United States, the land managers were women. And everybody that I meet that is Indigenous understands this mountain, the water, and can still have, they hold those, um, that wisdom that is so needed even to, um, you know, it's not just land. It's, it's something deeper than that and in our language too. And I think Deb's going to bring this perspective um, and the teachings that she comes through, um, with is that caretaking of land, you know, and I think that's uh, pretty phenomenal. And I'm really excited about um, her position. And I think it's going to be good for our homelands. Wahila Johns is co-founder and director of Native Renewables. We also heard from Paula Glover, president of the Alliance to Save Energy and former head of the American Association of Blacks and Energy. And Jeremiah Bauman, director of federal policy with the research firm Energy Innovation. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. It really does help advance the climate conversation. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. Steve Fox is director of advancement. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Our audio team is Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Andrew Stelzer. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, the nonprofit and nonpartisan forum where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>